0: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christadoulou. Arthur Brooks teaches leadership at Harvard, writes a must-read column on happiness for the Atlantic, and is the author of 13 books, the latest of which is Build the Life You Want, a collaboration with Oprah Winfrey. It's just come out in the UK, and he joined Hannah McInnes for a live stream to tell us more.
1: So you begin in the book saying a lot of people ask you, given what you do, you must be Mr. Happy. You must be happy all the time. You must have always, you know, be this happy uh, personification of happiness. And that's not right, is it?
2: Well, happy people don't study happiness. We, we, we study the things that we want, generally speaking. And, and the truth is, it was always kind of a mystery to me. I mean, I come from gloomy stock. Uh, I'm of British extraction. So what can I tell you? Of course, our family snuck out of Lancashire in 1630. But that notwithstanding, it's still, I mean, it is stiff upper lip territory in my family. And so the result is that we, you know, it's it comes hard for some people. Now, I've come to understand as a scientist that about 50% of your mood balance is genetic. And so there's no joke about that. But One way or the other, it didn't come naturally, and I wanted to study it so I could see whether or not I could get better at it. And it took quite a long time for me to convince myself that these were actionable ideas. But but boy, oh boy, what actually was finally on the scent of the happiness research, the neuroscience, the social psychology, to change my habits and change my life, I really did. And my life has never been the same.
1: Well, what is it exactly that you're studying, I suppose, as happiness is a very difficult term to define?
2: Yeah, I know the, the tendency that people have to define happiness as a feeling is one of the big problems in happiness. You know, one of the, it's funny, we all want to be happier, but it's elusive to so many people. Everybody would like to be happier than they are. And if it were something that was quite easy to do, we'd be selling it. We'd be, we, there'd be internet sites dedicated to it, or you could download it, or the government would be giving it to us in public programs. But the truth is, it's quite mysterious. And part of that has to do with the fact that we don't even know what it is. And if you define something incorrectly, you're unlikely to be able to pursue it appropriately. And that's exactly the case. Most people think that happiness is a feeling, and it isn't. Feelings are evidence of happiness, kind of like the smell of your dinner is evidence of dinner. So if you get the two things mixed up, you're going to be pretty disappointed. You're going to be waiting for your feelings to change. You're going to be hoping that you feel differently tomorrow. If your spouse yells at you or you don't sleep well, you're not going to be happy. And that's no way to live. Well, you know, good news That's simply evidence of your happiness. Happiness is a lot more specific, more relevant, more scientific and more and 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 something with which we can actually understand and change our habits. Specifically, happiness is a combination of enjoyment, satisfaction and meaning. And one of the things that Oprah and I write about in the book is what each one of those things mean and how we can pursue those things more appropriately while managing our emotional balance.
1: Before we come to them, tell us uh, why then, Oprah, like how you came together, why you're collaborating together on this project.
2: Well, Oprah actually um, approached me. So I had a book that came out in 2022 called From Strength to Strength about how people can get happier over the course of their lives, even as they're aging. And and, and she is a regular reader of my column and, and read that book and then called me up. And I, I didn't know her before. Um, you know, she called up and said, hello, this is Oprah Winfrey. And I said, well... Really? Well, this was Batman. I didn't believe it, you know, quite frankly, but but it really was Oprah Winfrey, and she suggested that we do a little bit of – we did her podcast together and, you know, did a couple of videos, and I thought – Well, she thought, wouldn't it be fun if we actually collaborated to get the science of happiness in front of millions of people by writing a book together and and a really fun, fruitful friendship and partnership was born. That was more than a year ago and the book just came out in September in London and New York.
1: And I love, she says at the very end that that's born out of her desire to share this with everybody, that the most important thing that you can do is to go out and share this knowledge.
2: That's exactly right. And one of the things that I teach my students, You know, given the fact I teach the science of happiness at the Harvard Business School, as I say, if you want to be happier, you need to do three things. You need to understand what happiness really is. In other words, do the work to understand the science. Use the science to change your habits. Make a commitment with discipline to changing the way that you live. You know, going on and doing all the things you used to do is not going to get it done. And last but not least, you need to teach these ideas to other people. You need to become a happiness teacher here's the thing you asked me at the very beginning, you know, am I happy? Is that why I study happiness? No, I want to be happier, which is why I study and teach happiness. That's the ultimate trick to learning something better. You want to understand math better? Well, learn it and then teach it and then you'll never forget it. And that's one of the things that Oprah and I are trying to do in this work is to create a whole generation of happiness aficionados and happiness teachers.
1: And why does she call it happierness?
2: One of the The big misconceptions I talked about a minute ago is that happiness is a feeling. Another big misconception is that happiness is a destination, that we can actually become cosmically happy in some way. I'm no theological expert, but I I do know that on this side of heaven, that's not possible. And there are good reasons why that's not possible. We have emotions that are positive and negative for good evolutionary reasons. We have many negative emotions, like sad and disgust and anger and fear. And we need those things to stay alive, as a matter of fact, and they're very important. We have more brain tissue dedicated to negative emotions than we have to positive emotions. They're so important for our survival, and yet they don't make us feel good. They're supposed to make us feel bad. And so to survive, put one foot in front of the other, to be a successful human being fully alive, you need lots and lots of aversive experiences and emotions. Furthermore, if you're going to get happier, you need to learn, you need to learn about life, you need to make mistakes, you need sacrifice and suffering in your life, and that doesn't make you happy in the moment either, notwithstanding the fact that it leads to potentially greater happiness down the road. So the goal is not happiness. The goal is to get happier, or as Oprah Winfrey puts it, the goal is happierness.
1: If the goal is to get happier, I mean one of the things that you you go through many ways in which to do that, and one of the most powerful tools you teach is metacognition. I wonder if you could explain that to people.
2: Sure. Um the 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 brain produces emotions, which are just information about the outside world. You know, one of the one of the things that my students often do is they say, I, wa- I want to feel good, and I want to stop feeling bad. That's the wrong way of understanding emotions, the wrong way of understanding feelings. The limbic system of your brain is brain tissue dedicated to producing emotions so that you can understand the outside environment and react appropriately to it. There's no such thing as a good or bad emotion. There's only a positive or negative emotion, and you need all of them. This is a very important way to re-understand emotions for the first time. Then if you actually want to have a prayer of managing those emotions and learning from them, you need to employ a part of your brain, the most evolved part of your brain called the prefrontal cortex. This is a, a big bumper of brain tissue right behind your forehead. That's your executive brain. It's how your consciousness, your conscious brain and, and the way for you to experience positive and negative emotions in your executive center is by this technique called metacognition, which is thinking about thinking. You need to be a student of yourself. You need to be aware of the emotions that you're having and analyze those emotions. And one of the things that we do in the book is to go through a suite of ways to do that. Different ways that you can become an expert in your own emotions. If you don't do that, you just exist. If you're if you're being managed by the limbic system of your brain, then you'll be a reactive person. You'll be reacting to your emotions all the time. And that's just no way to live you'll be quite unhappy. You'll also be pretty unsuccessful emotionally in your relationships with other people. We need to use our executive centers to experience our emotions more consciously and so doing then we're really in charge of our emotions. They're not in charge of us.
1: But that sounds much easier said than done. I mean, reacting to things instantly is something that is very human.
2: It is human, but it's all sort of childish in its way. You know, um, just before I came and saw you for our how-to session today, I was upstairs and my my little grandson is there, and and he's he's a little kid, he's a little boy, and my little grandson is completely limbic. He's a completely emotional <laughs> creature. Whereas he feels angry and he yells, he feels sad, he cries suddenly. Part of the reason for that is the wiring in his brain is incomplete. He's a baby. The wiring of the brain that has not yet connected the limbic system with the prefrontal cortex of his brain. It will, and one of the ways that it will is that we will encourage him as he gets older to use his words. When he feels something crummy, we'll say, use your words and, and talk about what is actually happening. As he gets older, we'll, we'll, we'll encourage him to write down his feelings, thus really employing your prefrontal cortex and managing your feelings to, to list the things that are bothering you so that they're not unfocused and floating around like, like, like ghosts in your limbic system. And in so doing, there are all kinds of very, very man- Manageable ways to do this. It sounds hard, but it really isn't. And, and in, quite frankly, it's an, an adventure to be able to do this. And we talk about the specifics on how in the book.
1: Perhaps you could explain, though, how it makes one happier.
2: For sure. I'll give you a specific example. So a lot of young people today, a lot of people in general, but especially a lot of people in their 20s, all over the UK and the United States and many other countries around the world are, are experiencing a lot of anxiety. Anxiety and, and they'll go to the doctor and the doctor will say you have some ang- generalized anxiety disorder, for example. Now that's a problem in and of itself because we over diagnose everything and we turn everything into you have it or you don't have it. And the truth of the matter is that everybody has some anxiety. We need to understand what anxiety is it's unfocused fear. Fear is evolved in us as a primary negative emotion so that we will be averse to things that are dangerous. You hear a stick snap behind you out in the forest and your first instinct is to run, Because that's how your brain was wired. That's a a much better instinct than saying, oh, a a twig snapped behind me. I bet that's my close friend. Everything is a threat until you actually know what it is. And that's what's kept you alive for the last 500,000 years or so. So fear is something that's episodic with respect to the natural environment. Anxiety is an unfocused fear because we have so many sources of threats that we can't put our finger on. If you want to fix a problem with anxiety, one of the best ways to do it is to make it focused, is to focus your fear. So here's what I recommend to everybody. When you're feeling a lot of anxiety and you get that, you know, that, that, that kind of that flightiness in the pit of your stomach and, you, you know, you're feeling like, ah, I, I, I'm not going to be able to go to sleep tonight. All the things that anxiety does to you. Get out a piece of paper and take out your favorite pencil and say, I'm going to write down the 10 things that are freaking me out right now. And what I think the reason they're freaking me out and the worst thing that can happen and something I can do about it for each one of those things. And by the end of those 10, There's still some things that are going to be freaking you out a little bit, but you will have focused the fear in your prefrontal cortex as opposed to having the unfocused anxiety that's bombarding you from the limbic system. And it's actually pretty interesting and and sometimes even kind of fun. I do it myself all the time. When I'm feeling anxious, I make a list, and that's my prefrontal cortex at work.
1: And just going back to what you were saying about taking time, it's it's with everything, when you're reacting to anything, negative comments are said about you or something online or an email that's uh, made you angry or someone says something to your face that makes you angry. Is it just about taking the time, essentially, to assess the situation and not going with your gut reaction and, and just learning to be slower and to process?
2: There's a lot of that. The beginning of all metacognition is putting space between what you feel and how you react because your prefrontal cortex is slower than your limbic system. If a car is about to run over you in a crosswalk and you're walking through London, if you're an American in London, you're looking the wrong direction for oncoming cars all the time. Sooner or later, a, a, a London taxi cab is going to almost kill you. And when it crosses your visual cortex, it's processed by your brain as a large predator. That's how your brain sees it. That sends a signal to the amygdala of your limbic system that lights up and puts you on full alert. That sends a signal through to your pituitary gland, down to your adrenal glands above your kidneys, and that starts spitting out stress hormones. This happens in 74 milliseconds. It's extraordinary how fast this is. You'll jump out of the way. You'll be swift your heart will be pounding, maybe you'll make an obscene gesture to the cabbie. Three seconds later, your your, your prefrontal cortex catches up with you to understand what's happening. Meanwhile, your limbic system has saved your life. Your prefrontal cortex, three seconds later, will say, I shouldn't have made that obscene gesture to the cabbie because those aren't my values. So the whole point is if you want your prefrontal cortex involved, you need to give it time. Here's a way that we can all do that we feel angry a lot you feel angry Your grandmother probably told you hey Hannah, when you feel angry count to 10 before you say anything there's a lot of research on this The truth is you should count to 30 and while you're doing that envision yourself saying the thing that you want to say to the other person and 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 bearing the responsibility for that that's working everything into your prefrontal cortex. Takes about 30 seconds, you know, to really process it. And then you will make a better decision. And what you're doing is you didn't choose the emotion, you chose the reaction. And choosing the reaction is something you really can not have control over.
1: Well, one of the other things, you were mentioning writing down, uh, you know, your reactions and your thoughts and what's making you feel stressed and dealing with it that way. And one of the other things that you talk about the power of a journal to help with is gratitude. I and mean, when we hear a lot about gratitude these days, and sometimes I think it's lost its real meaning in the sense that, you know, we, we hear it a lot. It's become almost cliched. But you talk about it in the book as something incredibly important, this really significant part of making our lives better and becoming happier.
2: Absolutely. Gratitude is a funny thing because it doesn't always come naturally. And, and part of the reason for that is that we have what evolutionary psychologists call the negativity bias. The negativity bias, which is always be on the lookout for the bad thing. Good things are nice to have. Bad things can do you in. So if you're at a party and somebody's smiling sweetly at you from across the room, it's nice. But if somebody's frowning angrily at you from across the room, pay attention, because that actually might do you in once you go out on the street. That's how our bodies are our brains are wired to help us survive. But the result of that is that it's maladapted to the current environment by giving us a bias toward the the negative the negative around us. And that's why you can be, I don't know, you 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 you're sitting in first class on an airplane complaining about the food. That's how that works, that we tend to be resentful. We tend to forget the nice things that we have. You can be in a a safe country like the UK, in a warm home, in a soft bed, and be really mad about the pillow. Because we tend to focus on the negative part. That's how we're wired as people. The way to counteract that and to actually be more in touch with the reality of our modern lives is to make a list of the things that you're really grateful for and pay attention to those things. That way you're manually using your prefrontal cortex to focus on what you should be focused on and will give you much more happiness and you'll have a better life as a result of that. My students, they write down the things they're most grateful for on Sundays. Every day during the week, they look at their lists. On Sundays, they update their lists. And by the end of 10 weeks, they're 12% happier. This is free, and everybody should be doing it.
0: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code How to just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code how to to dive into the world of the arts like never before.
1: And then you also, I mean, we'll go through, and and you know, there's something for everyone in this book, and then all of it for everyone as well. And I think some people will focus on certain elements and know they need that a lot more in their life. But I think it's fascinating the way in which you sort of question empathy. And I I mean, I I did not think this. I thought that having empathy and having a lot of empathy is something that we should all aspire to have. But you question actually how happy that makes you. And I wonder if you can explain why.
2: Yeah. I mean, empathy tends to be kind of an overrated virtue in our modern society. It's, uh, it's feeling somebody else's pain and, and there's a lot of good that can be, that can come from that. It's not the same thing as sympathy. Empathy is really relating to the pain that somebody else is going through physically or even more important, emotionally, they're going through. It's overrated because we're, ha- we have a tendency to substitute it for action and compassion. Compassion starts by feeling somebody else's pain. Then it proceeds to not being uh, paralyzed by somebody else's pain and then finishes by not being afraid to do what actually needs to be done to help somebody. Now, that's really important. The worst parents of teenagers I've ever met are unbelievably empathetic. Ah, oh, you're feeling so much pain. I'll call your teacher. Um, I'll, I'll try to relieve your pain. That's, that's terribly uncompassionate ordinarily because people need to actually grow up and, and people need to feel feel the pinch of what life is really all about. The most compassionate parents, they suffer with their children, but they're not paralyzed by that suffering. And they do things that are really, really hard, even when their kids don't like it. Bosses need to be compassionate as opposed to just empathetic. And, And in general, you make life a lot better for yourself and a lot better for others if you have the courage and understanding of compassion, which is which is not limbic. It really comes from making decisions and being reasoned about what you do as opposed to simply being, you know, the feeling of other people's pain, which is a highly limbic phenomenon.
1: I mean, let's just um, get some more explanations or examples from you so people can take it into their own lives. So you've given the example of a parent, but if you feel like you're someone who's prone to over empathy, or even if you're just looking at situations and you with this in mind, how do you say go out into your life and, and be more compassionate in a way that makes you a happier person?
2: For sure, and you know, there's lots of examples, by the way, of how empathy makes less happiness around us. You know, what you find is if you're an overly empathetic person, the person who's in front of you right now who's suffering will actually get what they need. They'll get the favors, and you'll be paralyzed from doing what most people need. We see this a lot from politicians, where politicians were swayed by the the plight of somebody who's right in front of them, actually leads them to make a decision that's not the the greatest good for the most people, for the the greatest number of constituents, or even for their country and we find that this over empathy that we find in our modern political system can can become a real problem you can be clouded in your decision making and that can result in in, in the welfare of people falling and your own welfare falling as well. So that's one of the reasons that we need to kind of question the baseline emotions that we feel to, to, to always interrogate the feelings that we have to, to, you know, this is one of the things that, and by the way, this is not just some super analytical scientific Western approach. This is the basis of self analysis in Buddhism. Buddhists will meditate and they will, they will analyze their own emotions. They'll say while they're meditating, what is the nature of my sadness? And, and in so doing, they're making it highly metacognitive such that they can actually use their emotion in the most productive way while while they're not being paralyzed by that emotion or induced to do something that's against their interests and hurts other people as well.
1: I mean, it's it's really interesting. We'll come back um, at the end to an example, I think a very sort of current example where I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on. But you're talking empathy, talking about compassion. They, these all involve behaviors towards other people. And a lot of the time, happiness or the path to a good life is portrayed as something that you do for yourself, your own self, you sit and you practice self care and self love. And that is how to have a better life. But your book is very much emphasizing that it is much more about the way you behave towards others or bring others into your life. That's what you would say is putting people more on a path to happiness.
2: Absolutely. I mean, what we have a tendency, an evolved tendency, to do all kinds of things that don't make us happy. Mother Nature really doesn't care if we're happy at all. Mother Nature really wants us to survive and pass on our genes. I mean, the higher path, the divine path, is one in which we can love and be loved, which is really not a prerogative. Of, of our natural instincts, and so we need to do things that don't necessarily feel as natural as they otherwise would, and that's a perfect example. When I don't feel good, I, I want other people to help me, and, and, and I want to help myself, and I'm not really very focused on the needs of other people, but the research is very clear. When you want more love, the way to get it is to go love another person. When you want to actually feel more belonging, the way is to go and give somebody a better sense of belonging. If you really want to lift yourself up, lift other people up is really the way that it works, and it's not a natural phenomenon necessarily. Some people are naturally better at it than other people. You know, I'm kind of a selfish person naturally. I have to work at this all the time. I have to write notes to myself to make sure that I'm not doing that. We give a lot of hints on how to do that, by the way, and one of them, which is a great happiness enhancer – is to try to make time in your day every day to just observe the world and what you can do to make it better as opposed to looking in the mirror. Looking in the mirror, the Zoom screen or the social media mentions or, or even the physical mirror, all that is doing is focusing on me, 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 me. That's called the me self. Rather spend more time in the I self observing the world. The, Z- the Japanese Zen Buddhists, they talk about this an awful lot. It's a very beautiful thing that they talk about where they they just observe it's an attitude of outward observation. and in so doing, they they finally find peace, quite frankly. there's a, there's no more turmoil than focusing on yourself all the time, being the big star of your own psychodrama. Which is one of the reasons that zooming out on life, the majesty and the awe, and, and, and quite frankly, the enlightenment that comes from practicing your religion, which I do, I have a traditional religious practice, it, it gets me out of me, which is just so boring.
1: I mean, you do say, well, let's talk about faith, definitely, but you do say just to stick on the mirrors and the and the me self. You, you say, I mean, perhaps try not to have mirrors around, try very hard not to take selfies, try not to go online and put photos of yourself or try to look to Facebook or social media for satisfaction or for completion. But then some people would say that to them, they feel insecure or they don't feel a sense of a full sense of self without checking those things, that that, that brings some sort of fulfillment to their lives.
2: Yeah, that's an addiction. And so mirrors both virtual and real that what that does is that a little bit of uh, affirmation that comes from seeing somebody like your Instagram post or, you know, checking your your looks in the mirror. As often as you possibly can, that gives you a little hit of a neuromodulator in the brain called dopamine, which is anticipation of reward. And we get very hooked on the on the stimulus and response. We get very hooked on, on on a particular action that gives us a little tiny bit of this spritz of of neurochemical that 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 has a kind of a relief factor that it gives us in our lives. And and the more we do it, the more addicted we are. And the more addicted we are, the more that we do it. And the result of that is that people check their phones six hundred times a day. What are they checking their phones? Is somebody writing to me? Is somebody talking about me? Is somebody thinking about me? Is somebody posting about me? And that's just no way to live. Uh, Oprah and I talk in the book about somebody I've, wor- I've worked with very closely who is an, an Instagram influencer on fitness. So this is this is a guy who, you know, he's showing his abs on the internet for, you know, fun and profit. And what a way to make a living. I mean, to, to, he he said that in, in order to look the way that he does, one of the great um, ironies of the fitness industry, is that to look as healthy as possible, you have to do things that are not healthy. <laughs> and so there's a lot of illusion. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors and a lot of unhealthy behavior. And he said he didn't eat what he liked for 10 years. He didn't have proper relationships, all kinds of weird physical problems. And so he finally said, I'm stuck. I'm addicted to how I look. I need to get away from that. So he literally took all, the, all of the mirrors out of his house. And then he didn't and he showered in the dark for a year. So he couldn't see his own abdominal muscles to get away from this constant, constant, constant me self of the of the objectification of who he was as a person. And it really changed his life. Now he's you know dedicated to helping people in all sorts of different ways and and he's a good friend and a, a really good family member. And he saved his life, quite frankly, by doing this.
1: But we do live in a very different world, don't we? We live in a world where it's very hard for a lot of people to avoid. I mean, mirrors is one thing, but the online presence or, you know, just a very, a digitization of society and perhaps more stressful for people to try to entirely, you know, disappear from that, to switch that all off, because that is the world we live in. So it's a balance, isn't it?
2: it? It is a balance and you have to live in the world, but we need a lot less of it than we think. What I would recommend is that everybody who's watching us, that they do just a little experiment, which is to take the social media apps off your phone, just get rid of the apps, and and then to only look at your social media on your computer. (laughs) And only do it for a total of 30 minutes a day in the morning across all of the apps, across all of the applications, across all the platforms. Why? Because you'll look at it all at once, you'll scroll a little bit, but you're going to be rationing your time and you'll mostly be using it to kind of keep up to date with people that you like and know, as opposed to, you know, wasting your time understanding what Kim Kardashian is up to for example, or you know, watching ridiculous videos, or scandalous stuff, or feeling lonely because you're not being involved, or social comparison, or all this kind of stuff. So just a little experiment. The first couple of days are hard, and the reason is because the dopamine in your brain is screaming out to get some satisfaction. Your brain is saying, feed me, feed me more dopamine. Don't do it, it'll be okay, you'll survive. And then after a few days, it'll start to get better. And by the end of the week, you're going to notice you have a lot more time on your hands and you feel a lot better about yourself. You might just, like I did, leave those applications behind for good.
1: And what about the socialization aspect of people who are otherwise on their own? I mean, we obviously saw a huge peak in this during the pandemic, but still after that time, there are people who live on their own or who don't live in big communities. And you know, the digital world can help them. But of course, I mean, it's two questions in one really, but it's what about them and also I suppose how did the pandemic change that sort of socialization and how important is it for happiness?
2: Well, you know, what we get, um, what our brains want with respect to relationships is a a hormone, it's a neuropeptide, that functions as a hormone in the brain called oxytocin. We're evolved to produce this molecule called oxytocin which is referred to by scientists as the love molecule. It's the in in your brain what links you to other people, and it's intensely pleasurable when you first lay eyes on your newborn baby, or you see your parents for the first time in a long time if you have a good relationship with them, or or your closest friends. But you only really get oxytocin with eye contact, real eye contact and touch. You don't get it very much; just a little tiny trickle of it from social media, and when people are virtual and they're they're not live, you get a little bit of it from Zoom. Or, From these platforms, but not very much. And, and, and touch is the real deal. So if you're substituting human relationships for virtual versions because of convenience and distance, you're going to be starving. And what's going to happen almost inevitably, it's like getting all of your, all of your meals at McDonald's. There's nothing wrong with going to McDonald's from time to time. I say this as a, as a, as an American, you know, this is a lot of what we eat over here, but every meal, What's going to happen is you're going to get not enough nutrients and too many calories. You can literally become obese and malnourished at the same time if you're getting all of your food at fast food outfits. That's the same thing as social media. You want the oxytocin. And so you binge the social media and you only get a little trickle. And so you're... You're, you're binging doing something bad for your brain at the same time you're actually getting lonelier and wasting your time. You need real humans to the extent that you possibly can. And we need a society where it makes it easier for us
1: to get that. And you say, if I'm right, that the four pillars of happiness are friendship, family, faith and work.
2: Yeah, those are the pillars on which we, the happiest people build their lives. It's kind of an investment portfolio because these things take time. And then, of course, Oprah and I, we go into describing what each, each one of these things mean because they're not self-evident, what they mean in different people's
1: lives. No, and I think the work one is really interesting because I think sometimes, you know, it's, it's a mixed message as to whether work should be something on which you base happiness and whether if you give your life to your work and that makes you happy, that is necessarily a good thing.
2: Yeah, no, for sure, and there are a lot of people who over-index on work, you know, here in the states, there are people who work routinely 80-90 hours a week and, and London, God knows, is a is a, you know, a, it's a factory um, of people's lives relatively speaking. And the biggest problem that we have is workaholism for people who don't do the other three. So faith, family, friends and work. Remember the faith, family, friends part. You need a diversified portfolio. Only paying attention to your work is like putting all of your pension portfolio into Greek bonds. I mean, I don't recommend, I'm an economist, trust me, I don't, I don't recommend, that's not a good, I mean, you might it might work out, but it probably won't. It's not a good strategy and you might be very disappointed come retirement time about how much you have to live on. So the, and so work is really important and, and work doesn't mean working for pay, by the way, working might mean raising your children. It might mean, it it might mean taking care of family members. It might mean volunteering. There's lots and lots of ways to work, but that's the productive use of your labor. And it has to be one part of the four dedicated really only to two things. You're creating value and you see the value you're creating and you're serving other people. That's really what it is. It's not how much money you make and the power and the admiration of other people. It's using your the way you make your daily bread and the way that you create value to be a valuable person and be recognized for that and to serve other people who need you.
1: It's interesting, of course, uh, begs the question. You're an economist and you're talking about it's not making money that's important. And I'm sure many people wonder you know, it's easy to say that you don't need money and money doesn't make you know, make one happy. But what are your thoughts on that?
2: Of course, people need enough to feed themselves and take care of their families. We, we know that. We, we, we want to have a society where that's possible. We even set up government programs to make it such that people don't fall too much through a social safety net. We have that in all of the OECD countries. Some countries are doing it differently than other countries, but we all want that kind of thing. So, Money is no joke. You have to have it to exist in a, in a market-based society or really any society that we see on the, on the earth today. But here's the thing. All of our grandmothers taught us that money doesn't buy happiness. And it's true. What money does is it, is it eliminates the common sources of unhappiness up to a particular point. So we find in the United States somewhere up to like $100,000 a year that really will defray unhappiness in all sorts of meaningful ways, depending on where you live. Some places are more expensive than others, probably more than that in London, New York, quite frankly. But above that, it doesn't eliminate more sources of unhappiness. And people will, will will think they're going to feel better from having more money and chase it and chase it and chase it for the rest of their lives. And what are they eliminating is the time that they need for the things that really will bring happiness, which are based on, on faith and family and friendship and serving other people.
1: And actually talking about chasing, that's this element slightly different of looking to the future that humans do, looking to the future, assessing the future, making plans. And you talk about the importance of just being in the moment to happiness
2: that that's true you have to enjoy your life and one of the problems probably a lot of people who want to watch how to frankly you're look we're strivers you know we want to get better we want to make progress that's why we do something called how to so we can learn more and we can use that information let's not kid ourselves this is not the average person on the street watching this show Why? Because we tend to live in the future. You find that strivers and entrepreneurs and hard workers, and and one of the great things about them is that they always see the possibility for a better future. And our society is based on the the labor and optimism of people who see a better future, or at least the hope of people who see a better future. That's really important. But here's the thing, it can go too far. The average human spends 30 to 50% of their time thinking about imagining themselves and planning the future. They're living in the future. If you're spending all your time in the future, you're not alive right now. You're not, you're, you, you're not experiencing the present. And what, what you're doing now is thinking about a future. Uh, you're thinking about a future now. And when you get to that future now, you'll have missed it because now is in the past. And that future is now the present you're not paying attention to. Your whole life passes before your eyes. And so one of the things that I recommend... And, and the strivers, the entrepreneurs, more than 30 to 50%, up to 80% of their time is in the future, is taking real measures to say, I'm alive now. I'm experiencing this now. Walk for an hour before dawn in nature without your phone, thinking about the things that you're seeing, listening to the sounds, smelling the morning air. Oh, it's, it's, it's crazy, actually. It feels like a brand new life to a certain extent. It's also hard to do. But the better at it you get, the happier you'll be.
1: You talk about that in the chapter about faith. Do you think that faith is necessary for happiness? Can you you be happy if you are not with a faith?
2: Absolutely, you can be. When we talk about faith, however, that's a big umbrella term. Faith, in this sense, it, it encompasses philosophy, spirituality, a sense of the transcendent. What you really have a hard time being happy with is you have no sense of bigger things than you is what it comes down to. Bigger ideas, the majesty of the universe. There are a lot of ways to get that. And so, I mean, I say I'm I'm a Catholic. It's a really important part of my life for sure. But as a social scientist, you don't have to be a Catholic to get this. (laughs) One of the things that's important to understand is that we need to zoom out from our psychodrama. To be happy, get small. It's very important. Why? Because otherwise you know, the, 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 the narrative in your head all day long is my job and my house and my car and my success and my money and my lunch and me, me, me. It's so the psychodrama is so boring. And when you zoom out and get small, you have peace and you have perspective. And so what I recommend is that everybody spend at least 15 minutes a day to start more later reading the wisdom of the ages. Maybe that's the stoic philosophers. Maybe that's, um, maybe that's a traditional religion. Maybe it's starting a meditation practice. Maybe that's analyzing the fugues of Johann Sebastian Bach. Or maybe it is that walk in nature where you actually have a, an experience of the majesty and the wisdom of the ages. One way or the other, you've got to get small. And that's what Oprah and I mean by faith.
1: And what's the balance then between getting small? Because when you get small, you may feel that none of it matters.
2: Yeah, actually feeling that none of it matters temporarily is central to happiness. Because when everything is heavy and everything is serious and everything matters so very much, it's just terrible. Life is tyranny under those circumstances. And when you can zoom out on your own life a little bit, you, you find you're just laughing at what you thought was so important. You know, it's, oh man, yeah, I can't believe it. I can't, this, this, you know, I, I, I paid that bill late and somebody called me on the phone and I felt really embarrassed about that. And that, whatever, I got to be in a class or whatever the problem happens to be, get some space, man. It's so important that we zoom out on it, that we make the problem small and our, our, our own issues small. It's not going to stay that way. It's not like you're going to become the Dalai Lama. And have this, you know, grand enlightenment where you're, where you feel like you're small forever. No, you're a human being. You're going to come right back to it. But you need peace. You need space. You need a, a safe space in your life where you're not there bothering you.
1: And you talked then about laughter, which. It's it's very easy as a question for me to ask, and it's very easy, but it's it's and it's obvious, I suppose, is what I mean. But it's so important. You talk about that in the book, the importance of humor and not being a person making the joke, but just finding things to laugh at and people to laugh with.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. It's um, you know, there's um, th- this is one of the things that we call emotional substitution in the book, where if you're properly metacognitive. You can get some space between the, the emotion that you're feeling and the reaction that you want. One of the things that you can do is you can literally substitute one emotion for another where both are appropriate, but one's better. And, and this is a classic case of this. You know, I have a, I have a friend who's a, a pretty famous actor in the United States. He, he was actually one of the stars of the American version of The Office. You know, of course, it's a British show, a Ricky Gervais show, but when it came to the United States, it was hysterically funny because it was, you know, the American style of it, which meant it was a different show, but very funny. And this is a guy named Rain Wilson, who is in the office, and he's an incredibly talented comedian. He's wonderful. I talk to him almost every day. We grew up about five miles away from each other in a city called Seattle on the West Coast. And, and um, I asked him one time, why is it that so many comedians are depressed? And what is it about comedy that makes you depressed? And he said, no, 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 you got it backwards. He said that depressed people turn to comedy. If they tend to be funny, they notice that when they feel rotten, which is a lot, they make a joke and people laugh and, and they feel better. This is really important to keep in mind. That's a substitute emotion. That the, the, the humor is a substitute emotion for sadness for a lot of people. Now, not everybody's funny, but here's how the hack for the people who aren't, you know, great joke tellers like my friend Rain Wilson or Ricky Gervais or anybody like that. Look for funny things and surround yourself with funny things and learn how to laugh more. And when you're feeling sad, expose yourself to humor. It's just incredible analgesic. It's it's better than any pill you can take, at least in the moment. I could explain the neuroscience, but nobody needs it. You know it's true. <laughs>
1: um, there's some audience questions. It's definitely time for audience questions because it's very selfish for me to ask them all myself. But I just wanted to ask. I feel like one of the things people might be thinking at the moment is that the world feels like a very unhappy and frightening place, particularly in the last few weeks, really just almost unfathomable for many people. And I think it really does take happiness away from so many people's lives, not least the people who are involved. And I'm just wondering, I'd love to know your advice on how to remain uh, you know, happy if that's possible when the world feels such, so bleak.
2: So it is absolutely possible to be happier than we were before. You know, when the book came out in London and New York on September 12th, there were these terrible wildfires that had just happened in Maui. My co-author Oprah Winfrey lives in Maui. She was there for those particular fires, and you know, her heart was breaking for those people. And so, what so it was for people all over the United States. that saw this incredible hundreds and hundreds of people lost their lives, and and, and thousands and thousands lost their homes. And now we see, you know, the the war and violence and suffering that's coming from the Middle East right now, and most people can't do anything directly about that, but but they want to do something. They feel hopeless and helpless, and this and the, and that the, the origin of the unhappiness they feel is the helplessness that they feel when they see so much human suffering around them. A couple of things to keep in mind: the first is that that the idea that if you're happy, something's wrong with you morally is not right. That is simply not correct. And there are a lot of people, no matter what it is, that say, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. This is the standard you know, tool in the toolbox of politicians today that are trying to get everybody to be extremely unhappy because unhappy people are good consumers and good voters, quite frankly. But even when people see a legitimate crisis like what we're seeing in the Middle East today, when they say, if you're happy, something's morally defective about you, that's that's just simply not right. And we should reject that. But. The bigger question is how can you be happier when there is so much suffering? And and here's the answer to that. You can't probably do something that's remarkably gonna change the suffering in the Middle East. But you know what? There's somebody within a few blocks of you that is suffering right now. And it's easy for us to block them out. It's easy for us to forget about the suffering that's proximate to the lives that we're leading. There are people in in your country, there are people in your community that actually need you. The way for you to feel less helpless is to relieve somebody's pain near you. Use the opportunity of the helplessness that you feel because of the war in the Middle East. Use that hopelessness and helplessness and turn it into hopefulness. Turn it into your opportunity, your stimulus to do something for people around you to do. And Here's my promise. If you relieve the suffering, if you lighten the load from somebody who needs it right now, you'll feel less helpless and you'll feel less hopeless and your life is gonna get better because the world is getting better because of you.
1: Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A really um, interesting answer and, uh, yeah, very, very helpful. I think um, Anna's question, I think your answer will be compassion is, is what she's searching for as a word. But Anna says, you say empathy is an overrated virtue, but without empathy, surely we wouldn't strive to improve life for others. Doesn't having empathy mean we want to volunteer and serve other people? And as you say, volunteering and serving, serving others are part of those ingredients of happiness.
2: There's nothing wrong with empathy. Empathy is not bad. It's just incomplete. You need to complete it with action, and action requires courage. So just feeling somebody's pain isn't enough, and sometimes you need to not be paralyzed by somebody else's pain when you're feeling empathy. For sure, you need empathy so that you'll be spurred to action, but the action part itself frequently is really hard. I've had my kids really, really mad at me. When they're suffering and I tell them they have to do something hard and they want me to just relieve their suffering – That's because I was able to move from empathy to compassion. All of us can do that. And that's what makes the world better. That's what winds up making us happier at the end of the day. That's
1: really interesting. And the other thing that people, you know, uh, debate what makes you happier and what makes a better life is sort of routine versus spontaneity. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's better to have a routine to stick to and to know and have the familiarity or better to let things come at you and not worry too much about that? It's a good
2: question, and people vary with respect to this. There's some people who are much happier when they have an utterly routinized structure of their day. There's a lot of neuroscience about the differences between people who love routine and people who love spontaneity. Now, that said, there's a certain number of disciplines that can really help. I recommend that if people want to get happier and they want to build their day around the, the highest likelihood of getting happier, that's most productive, that they have certain routines that they have in the day for body and soul. I mean, for me personally, I get up every morning and I go to the gym and then I I practice my religion before I have my coffee and before I do my work. Why? Because I want my body and soul on point and I have certain very specific disciplines that I undertake in my life to do that. That's a routine. Now, that's hard for me because I'm a spontaneous person. I would love to have every day be completely different, but if every day is different and doesn't actually involve me taking care of my body and soul, that spontaneity is going to work against me. So find the kind of job and find the kind of life, if you can, that has the right level of structure and spontaneity for your happiness, but make sure that you have the personal disciplines in place so that your happiness hygiene is also on point.
1: Okay. I really like this next question from an anonymous attendee who says, happiness is overrated. What's wrong with being sad? Then count your blessings
2: yeah indeed and and the idea of perfect happiness as we mentioned before is absolutely the wrong goal you're not going to be in some cosmic sense absolutely happy you need suffering in your life suffering is sacred young people today they talk about getting rid of their 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 unhappy feelings you know at my university people go to the campus counseling center and say i'm anxious and depressed and 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 they as if it as if it's some sort of defect. It's not a defect. Look, I realize that it can interfere with your life and it can actually be a medical problem. I I understand that perfectly well as a social scientist. But I also know that life is hard and life requires sacrifice and there's no way you're going to avoid negative feelings and you learn a lot from your sadness. One of the things that I I encourage my students to say with me is that, that suffering is sacred. You just have to understand it, learn from it, and grow from it. And that's what really requires the skills that we're talking about here. Don't be afraid of unhappiness. Don't be afraid of your sadness. Don't avoid those things. Learn from them, understand them, and grow from them.
1: And what about family? Why do you say, and why do you devote a chapter to building your imperfect family?
2: Well, all families are imperfect and everybody cares about their families. I mean, anybody who says I don't care about my family, they're just lying. We actually, it's very, very important that we understand that the the strange and magical nature of family relationships. We have, there's some of the most intense love relationships that we have and we didn't choose them. It doesn't even make sense. It's almost a mystical thing that people have. Those people who can drive you absolutely around the bend, make you completely crazy and you didn't even choose the relationship and you feel great sorrow where there's schism. This is something that we need to understand. Now, again, the oxytocin neuropeptide that we talked about earlier is in greatest abundance with your kin. And that's an evolutionary phenomenon. Your kin are very important to you. On the Pleistocene, 500,000 years ago, if you break with your kin, you might walk the frozen tundra and die alone. Or in, I guess, 1630, when my family bailed out of Lancashire, um, they probably were getting thrown out of their kin. Not enough oxytocin. All I can say is they did a little bit better in Massachusetts, I hope. You know, the truth is you need that. That's really important. So understanding the imperfect nature of the family and and making the relationship a little bit better is a lot of what we talk about because that requires knowledge and, and that has a certain set of skills attached to it that we can all we can all get better at.
1: Uh, yeah, and you talk about one of the things that really breaks a lot of uh, families or distresses a lot of families is difference of values and difference of views and the importance of putting that to one side.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, there's a, a big... Um, uh, there's always an intergenerational problem in families where young people have different ideas than their parents and their parents have not quite let them go as adults and so the result is how can you think those things those are contrary to our religious values or our political values or our social values and we see this all the time in the states where you know kids will come back from college and they'll tell their parents that they're fascists or you know or even more frequently what will happen is that you know Kids come home and, and their parents are still kind of hippies and their, their kids are, you know, working for an investment bank or something. And it, one way or the other, everybody's, everybody's sort of disappointed by the fact that there's some sort of values difference. Okay, now here's a way to deal with that because these kinds of things are actually inevitable. Live the life you want, but don't tell people that disagree with you that their values are stupid. Almost all of the family schisms come from values schisms, not from behavioral schisms. You know, Live the life that you want. If you're doing something your parents disagree with, they're going to forgive you. I mean, I've got the data on this. I'm not making this up. In virtually all the cases, it's very rare because of the way you're living, your parents disown you. What really happens is that the, the schism with your parents comes be, is that you tell your parents that they're evil, racist fascists or whatever it is, because you're telling that their religion is stupid. Let them live their lives too. This is really important. I mean, my kids don't vote the way that I do, but they don't think I'm an idiot. At least they don't say that I'm an idiot, and that's really important. So. Pay attention to respect other people's values while living the life that you want to live and letting other people live their life too. Mm.
1: I mean, the same goes, I suppose, with friendships. You do choose your friendships and you can let go of your friendships. And you have some data about the amount of people that are saying these days they wouldn't be friends with someone who voted differently. I mean, the results are from um, the States, but we've had our own great divisions here which have split families and friends. And what the advice is the same there?
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, Brexit was really fun for a lot of families. You know, I, I spent half my life in the States and the other half in Barcelona. And, you know, in Barcelona, families are being split apart by the independence of Catalonia and the referendum. And, you know, it's the same thing in every country. Every country's got their thing. And Americans will look at Great Britain and go like, you stop talking to your mom because of Brexit? What's wrong with you? It's not that important. It's like, yeah, well, come here and tell us that. I mean, it's really important to people here. Why? Because there's so many values that are loaded on these political issues. It's not the politics per se. It's all that it represents. And it's you rejecting me, etc., etc. But by the way, this is an important point to, to make, is that if somebody's profiting when you hate somebody for political reasons or you walk away from a friend, it's a cable network. It's a social media platform. It's a politician. When you hate, somebody's profiting, but it's not you. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. You're being conscripted into somebody else's culture war. It's time to be a conscientious objector and love other people more.
1: So um, one of the, somebody says to, to the point about families, some people – break with families because they choose to do so. Others lose family through illness and accident and they have no choice, but they need to manage their circumstances. So I said, of course, you can't choose the situation that you are always in. You know, there are a lot of things that life throws at people uh, that, that they would not wish for.
2: Absolutely. And the learning and growth is incredibly important for us to Understand ourselves and ultimately to get happier part of that is the losses that we feel, you know I've, I've written a lot about sadness and and grief. Sadness is a basic negative emotion. It involves a, literally a specific part of the brain that sadness is processed in. It's called the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. Nobody needs to write that down. It's just a part of the brain that's dedicated to affective pain, mental pain, when we're either rejected or lose somebody or we're 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 separated from somebody that we love. And the reason for that is that evolution wants us to not be separated from people because people, when they stick together in packs, they're more likely to survive. You don't want to be separated from your tribe or your kin or your family is what the way that it works out. Well, sometimes it happens. And when that happens, the the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, it's highly active and it's incredibly painful, mentally painful for you. Here's an interesting little trick, by the way. If you have a bad breakup, you know, this is one of the ways that people in their 20s and 30s, especially their 20s, this is where they have a whole lot of grief and sadness that they they can't control. And there's not much they can do about it is when your beloved leaves you. That part of the brain, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, is most is best treated by an analgesic called acetaminophen or paracetamol. In the United States, that's called Tylenol. That's a very funny drug. You should never take too much of it. It's hard on your liver. But what you find is that it makes your dorsal anterior cingulate cortex a little bit less active. And new research shows that when you're very sad about losing a loved one or or, or having a bad breakup, that just taking ordinary Tylenol for a couple of weeks can can relieve some of that pain, because it's a brain phenomenon.
1: <laughs> when you talk about chemicals, there are, of course, I'm sure people who would listen and people would say that there are certain, very many, sadly, issues, you talked about anxiety at the beginning, that people would feel they have absolutely no control over.
2: You know, that that's, but it's not entirely true, they have no control over. I mean, anxiety is a perfect example of as we mentioned before, of unfocused pain and or unfocused fear. And they can focus the fear, but they have to know how to do it. A lot of the things that emotionally we feel like we have no control over, what it really is is that we have no knowledge of. And so we're taking these things as given because feelings are feelings are feelings, and there's no science of this, and it's just what we are as human beings. And the point that we're making in this book, and and indeed my, my life as a, as a scientist, is dedicating to helping people understand that the project of you – has all there's a lot that you can do there's a lot more that with knowledge and action that you can with simple things like making a list to focus your fears can greatly relieve your anxiety can take it down by by tens of percentage points almost immediately as a matter of fact and you know getting these skills is these are the life skills that can that can be the difference between a life that's mostly unhappy and one that's mostly happy
1: so we've come to the end, really. But I just wonder if your parting words would be just the simple things that people could take away if they were going to take away five things from this hour or, or from you just to take yeah. into tomorrow.
2: Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I'll, I'll make it even simpler than that. One of the things that we find is that I, there's a, we have data at Harvard called the Harvard Study of Adult Development that follows people over an 85-year period from when they're very young until they're they're old and and even dying. And and one of the things, the questions that this study asks is what do older people who are happy, what did they do when they were younger? What are the patterns of behavior when they were younger? So this is like a crystal ball in your own happiness. And it turns out that it, you know some of it's pretty obvious and drinking and smoking and diet and exercise and learning and dealing with your anxiety and worries, et cetera, and some of the things we already talked about. But by and large, the biggest thing in everybody's life That blows everything out of the water. If you want to know the one thing that really matters is that you love people more, that you have relationships, real close friendships, that you work to have a, a romantic partnership that can endure, that you stay close to your family. Not everybody has to have all of these things, but everybody has to have some of these things is the way that this works. Now, remember, the four pillars of a happy life are faith, family, friends, and work. What is that? That's love for the divine or something like that, love for your family, love for your real friends, not your deal friends, London strivers, and, and, and love for everybody is expressed through the way that you earn your daily bread. So I guess if there's four secrets to a happy life, they're love, 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 and more love.
1: Thank you very very much indeed. Was well, a good good place to end. I'm delighted to have you with us, and thanks everyone for signing in, and thank you for your questions. Brilliant. Thank you. I was just seeing there was no no more questions. Just uh, someone saying, great. Really enjoyed it. Brilliant as always. Thank nice. you so much, Arthur. Thank, thank you. you,
2: Hannah. Thanks for everybody watching How to.
0: This episode starred Arthur Brooks and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The producer was Nicole Wong. Nicole and I make the show with Esme Bright, and our editor is John Dorty. Arthur's book, Build the Life You Want, is out now, and you can find a whole host of amazing experts on the mind and well-being when you subscribe to this podcast, wherever you're listening. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.